Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump wasn't indicted today in the hush money case after an ally gave testimony yesterday. But prosecutor Alvin Bragg has invited another witness for tomorrow. The birth pangs of a new world order. An expert says Xi and Putin's meeting in Moscow signals the strengthening of an autocratic pan-Eurasian alliance as China and Russia's leaders reportedly sign an economic deal and talk of a new gas pipeline between the two countries. The House GOP is on a retreat in Florida and the threat of the Chinese regime was a main focus of the meeting. President Biden signs a bill to declassify intelligence on COVID origins, what the American public can expect to see. 30,000 education workers walk off the job in Los Angeles. Why are they striking and who is supporting them? No indictment today in the probe of former President Trump. The indictment, if it happens, is delayed until possibly next week. Meanwhile, the grand jury prepares to hear another witness. NTD's Arlene Richards has more details. Former President Donald Trump will not be indicted today, but a source said it could happen as early as next week. Meanwhile, New York City police are preparing for the worst. The grand jury is expected to hear additional witness testimony on Wednesday, but law enforcement is still concerned about safety. The former president on Saturday called on supporters to protest. On Monday, law enforcement officials met behind closed doors to discuss the logistics of closing down streets and adding extra police and barriers following a possible indictment. The grand jury has been probing Trump's alleged involvement in a $130,000 hush money payment made in 2016 to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Daniels says she had an affair with Trump in 2006, which he denies. Meanwhile, a Trump ally said on Monday that the key witness is a liar. Attorney Robert Costello testified before the grand jury for more than two hours. He then told reporters that Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, was a liar. Cohen had testified to the Manhattan grand jury on March 15 and is considered a key witness against Trump. Costello said there can be no doubt in anyone's mind that Michael Cohen has great difficulty telling the truth. One of Trump's attorneys said she was impressed with Costello's testimony. I think it was important. I was, I was very impressed by him. I think he did the ethical thing that he should do, and, and it, was, uh, it, it says a lot about their key witness. In 2018, Cohen was sentenced to three years in prison after pleading guilty to lying to Congress, as well as campaign finance violations and tax evasion. Cohen said in response that Costello's comments were fantastical and that the payment was made at Trump's direction. Trump blasted his former attorney in a Truth Social post on Tuesday, calling him a fake storyteller, who he refused to give a presidential pardon. Meanwhile, New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office responded to a request from House Republicans for information on the investigation. The office told news outlets, we will not be intimidated by attempts to undermine the justice process. Representative Jim Jordan told reporters on Monday that he doesn't think Trump broke the law. DOJ wouldn't take the case. Federal District of New York didn't take the case. Cy Vance wouldn't take the case. Bragg didn't want to take the case. And then what changed? President Trump announces he's running for president. It's unclear who will be providing testimony on Wednesday and what additional information will be provided. But prosecutors made it clear yesterday that they didn't want additional information from Cohen. Arlene Richards, NDD News. 
And in international news, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida made a surprise visit to Ukraine today. His visit comes at the same time that the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, is visiting Russia. Japan's government said Kishida's trip was to show Japan's unwavering support for Ukraine. So far, Japan has given over $7 billion to Ukraine, and Japan has accepted more than 2,000 displaced Ukrainians. Tokyo also joined the U.S. and European nations in sanctioning Russia, Russia over the war. And meanwhile, Xi and Putin signed a new agreement today to expand their economic ties at a meeting amid three days of talks between the two leaders. Putin also said they've been discussing a new project, a pipeline between the two countries. That's according to the Financial Times. A joint statement accuses the West of undermining global stability and accuses NATO of barging into the Asia-Pacific region. On Ukraine, Putin praised Xi for a peace plan he proposed last month and blamed Kyiv and the West for rejecting it. But Xi barely mentioned the conflict at all, saying that China had an impartial position to which the White House said China's position is not impartial. It urged Beijing to pressure Russia to withdraw from Ukraine's sovereign territory to end the war. And earlier today, I spoke with Brandon Weikert on this topic. He's a geopolitical analyst, senior editor at 1945.com, and author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Brandon Weicker, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, Xi and Putin are deep in talks, in part over China's claims of seeking to support peace in Ukraine. What do you expect to come of these talks? Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I would expect a greater alliance to be born out of this new uh, uh, entente that's happening right now. This is not a minor or temporary thing. I know people in Washington, D.C., they've been hugely embarrassed by this, so they're trying to downplay it. This is not a one-off. This is the birth pangs of a new world order. Uh, it is a, a kind of an autocratic pan-Eurasian alliance that's being built with Beijing. Beijing at the hub uh, as the hub of this alliance, but Russia is going to be a very important component of it. Uh, Russia has for years wanted to pivot to Asia. We've been talking about doing that in the United States. They've for years wanted to do that, Putin and Asiloviki, and now this is the perfect excuse. And so we can anticipate uh, a new world order being birthed. It's not going to be American-led and unipolar any longer. It is now going to be multipolar, and Russia is basically signing on to do to become part of China's new growing Eurasian-wide empire. Uh, and so we can anticipate the Ukraine war will not end anytime soon. And if it does end, it will not be in Ukraine or NATO's favor. So this isn't really a sudden break, per se. This is more of a coming out party. They've been planning this for years. It was just a question of timing. And now it's, it's the time is now. Xi and Putin signed an agreement to expand their economic ties today. We don't know all the details about that yet, but it could include plans for a gas pipeline from Siberia to right. China. What kind of effect do you think this partnership could have on international affairs? Well, the economic system, the global economic system that America has shepherded since at least 1991, probably even before that with the end of the Second World War, because remember, the Soviet Union was never really integrated the way China is integrated today in our system. Uh, but it is now a, a 
bifurcated, at the very least, a bifurcated um, system uh, where you have the Chinese sort of developing countries of the world led by Beijing, however nominally, and now Russia as well joining that sphere uh, versus the developed countries, which are very much declining and they're aging and they're really not doing so well. Uh, yes, we have a lot of upfront cash, but how deep is our economic capacity? Well, as we're seeing with what's going on in the American economy, it's not so good. And if we don't get it right with these bank bailouts or if we default on our debt, as we're probably going to do this summer with the debt ceiling fight in Congress in the United States, that's only going to add fuel to this fire that Beijing has started in which they're trying to basically divorce the world uh, from the U.S. dollar, divorce the world from America. America's economic hegemony, because they realize if they can create a new system, a new economic model that's led by Beijing, uh, they've basically stunted or weakened the American military threat, because our military only is as effective as our economy will allow it to be, will fund it to be. And so if China and Russia can get together and use energy as the beginnings of this new system, they're going to do that. Already Vladimir Putin, I think it was yesterday, announced that he wants to start trading oil in yuan, Chinese currency, that he wants to start doing more with Chinese currency. And we're all laughing about it here in the West, but big things have small beginnings. And as the American economy declines and looks less and less attractive, and as we use our economic superiority to go after Russia with sanctions, a lot of the developing world doesn't like that. And they're looking to China to shield them from potentially suffering some similar fate to what these other rogue states have suffered in the last 15, 20 years. So America's really hoisted itself by its own petard. As you've mentioned, Russia is now part of China's empirical ambitions, and you've said that the communist regime needs the Ukraine war to drag out so that it can fuse China and Russia's economies for its own expansion goals. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, well, basically, you know, we went into Ukraine thinking that Ukraine, with our help, would bleed the Russian army in the field now so that we wouldn't have to fight them possibly in the next 10 or 15 years, the Russians. Well, the Chinese are looking at Ukraine the same way, except on the other side. They're saying, hey, look, we can break Russia. The, the Americans and NATO can break Russia's army in the field. That makes Putin more dependent on Beijing. That means Beijing gets access to all that raw material, all of that resource resources that Russia is sitting on, notably in the Russian Far East that's sparsely populated. And hey, also, China might be able to get the Americans and NATO to completely break their backs trying to break Russia, and so much so that when the time is right, we and China can go into Taiwan and not expect much unified resistance from the West because they've completely wasted that time, resources, money, and possibly eventually lives fighting the Russians in Ukraine that, hey, the Chinese can walk all over Taiwan. Or also, we have to be watching out for North Korea initiating a conflict on behalf of China with South Korea. And we also, I think, and this is the basis of my next book, The Shadow War, coming out, Iran might start a world war in the Middle East very, very soon. Uh, and all of that's going to do is, is, is distract the Americans and break us, overstretch us, so much so that when China does decide finally to invade Taiwan, we can't do anything even if we wanted to.
And so what do you think the U.S. needs to do now to protect its power? Well, it's an unpopular opinion, but the U.S. needs to seriously withdraw from Ukraine. I think that we need to encourage our friends in Poland to send a very large force to Polonize Galicia. That's western Ukraine. Uh, basically, the Russians went in wanting to destroy any semblance of a Ukrainian independent state. They've already achieved that objective. It's a question of whether it happens now or in another six months. It's going to happen. And so we need to draw a real line of control in, in Ukraine, and the Poles need to be the ones to do it. And we need to tell the Russians hey, look, you can have eastern Ukraine, you can have Crimea, you've had it since 2014 anyway, uh, you've had Crimea longer in the, with the naval base there, uh, but you're not taking western Ukraine, and we will put a NATO force directly there so that if you do start something, we're going to start, a, we're going to have to go to war over that. I don't think Putin wants to go directly to war anytime soon with NATO, so I think he might take that deal. I think also this is something that Putin suggested to the Poles in 2010, and they didn't go for it. Understandably, this is not a good idea. Idea. This is the only idea we have left, short of going to nuclear war now with, with Ukraine. Uh, and so that's what we need to do, because we need to be able to rededicate our forces and our time focusing on the Indo-Pacific and focusing on containing Iran. And we can't do that if we're so overcommitted as we are in Ukraine. This thing is going to keep escalating. Russia's all in. They're not just going to quit. All right. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much. Senior editor at 1945.com and author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Great to have you on. Thank you. It's day three of the annual House Republican retreat in Orlando, Florida. The, the threat of the Chinese communist regime was a unifying threat at the meeting. The threat of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, was a main focus on day three of the House GOP retreat in Florida. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy listing some of the top priorities in his party. We're excited about doing something to make sure we're not dependent on China. We're very excited about making sure children and parents have a say in their kids' education. And we're excited about making America energy independent, lowering the price of gasoline for everyone, sustaining a geopolitical world that's actually safer, and actually bringing down inflation. So those are the things I focus mainly on. McCarthy invited Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, a member of the House Select Committee on the CCP, to speak. China is one of the greatest threats facing our country. Um, I believe it's the issue of my generation and of many generations, because if we don't take action right now, the next century will not be an American one. It will be one dominated by China. Um, it is very clear that the Chinese have a plan, right? By 2049, they want to be the preeminent world power for the economy, for our military, um, and for their social plan. The House Speaker emphasized the bipartisan nature of the Committee on China and highlighted recent bills that gained bipartisan support. He says he hopes to see something similar in the Senate. What we're trying to accomplish here, you first have to educate the American public. We're doing it in a bipartisan way. We put this committee together with Hakeem. We kept the size of the committee between Republican and Democrat very close. I would hope that the Senate would create a similar committee. Apart from the threat of the CCP, Republicans also focused on their investigations into the Biden family business dealings with China. The House Oversight Committee recently discovered that a business associate of Hunter Biden with ties to a Chinese company sent Biden family members over $1 million. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. President Biden denied the allegation that his family received the money. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer responded on Twitter saying Biden is dishonest. Comer posted an image of the bank records that the committee obtained, and he called on the White House to issue a correction. 
and paving the way for a fresh pile of documents. Biden signed legislation to declassify intelligence on COVID's origins today. NTD's Iris Tao has more on that from the White House. After staying undecided for 10 days, President Biden on Monday night finally signed off on legislation to declassify intelligence on COVID origins. He believes strongly that we've got to find the, the roots and the origins of COVID so that we can prevent a future pandemic. In a statement, Biden says he shares the Congress's goal of releasing as much information as possible about the origin of COVID, adding that we need to get to the bottom of this. The bill, now a law, will declassify all information on the potential links between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the origin of COVID. Specifically, it will publicize the names and symptoms of researchers at the Wuhan lab who fell sick in 2019. But the bill's becoming law doesn't mean that American public will see everything the U.S. government has found. Redactions will be made to prevent harm to national security. And the White House on Tuesday getting challenged on that need. But it insists that there needs to be a balance. Some of that has to be in a classified way right now. But it's always a balance between the, uh, the public's right to know, right, not need, but right, and our obligation to protect national security. And U.S. intelligence agencies will now start redacting their data on COVID origin before sharing it with Congress. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. President Biden agrees to block a controversial D.C. crime bill. It's the latest move indicating that Biden might take a more moderate path ahead of the 2024 elections. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. On Monday, President Biden signed a bipartisan resolution to block a D.C. crime bill. He previously pledged to sign it, saying, I don't support some of the changes D.C. Council put forward over the mayor's objections, such as lowering penalties for carjackings. Last week, the Biden administration said it's approving a huge oil drilling project in Alaska called the Willow Project. Some say he approved the Willow Project to come off as more moderate. A political science professor told The New Yorker that Joe Biden is a realist about what it will take to win re-election in 2024 for him or any other Democrat. However, the White House later said President Biden simply wasn't able to block the Willow Project. The president kept his word when he, uh, where he can, where where he can by law, right? Uh, that is important to note. Uh, and uh, as the Interior Department said, some of the company's leases are decades old, granted by prior administrations. The company has a legal right to those uh, leases. The department's options are limited when there are legal contracts. However, the president on Monday also issued his first veto. Biden turned down a Republican-authored measure that would ban making ESG investments using retirement funds. ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance. The Kentucky Republican Party responded to the veto, saying, Biden pretends to be a moderate, but he'll always side with those pushing to politicize everything, including retirement accounts. Biden defended the veto, saying ESG investments are based on risk factors MAGA Republicans don't like. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, schools are closed in Los Angeles as tens of thousands of education workers walk off the job. Why are they striking? And in tennis news, one of the greats of all time hasn't been allowed to play in the U.S. because he's unvaccinated. Hear what Novak Djokovic says about his decision. That and more coming up. And the 
the second largest school district in the U.S. cancelled classes on Tuesday for what could be a three-day strike. About 30,000 Los Angeles education support staff, backed by a teacher's union, refused to cross their picket line. NTD's Jackie Rios has that story. With labor talks at a standstill and no new negotiation schedule, LAUSD campuses will be closed Tuesday and likely through Thursday as service workers began a planned strike, leaving more than 400 students without classes. In pouring rain, 30,000 workers represented by the Service Employees International Union Local 99 began picketing to demand better wages and working conditions. Uh, and it is to protest the unfair labor practice of the district. That means that while workers were demanding uh, better wages, uh, more cleaning staff so the schools can be clean. This follows a six-day teacher strike in 2019 and the coronavirus pandemic that closed classroom instruction for more than a year in 2020 and 2021. But Superintendent Alberto Carvalho said kids already lost a lot of ground during the pandemic. He wrote in a Twitter post, they cannot afford to be out of school and that is why I am appealing directly to the union leadership to engage and negotiate in good faith and find a solution that addresses the needs of all, including our students. A former public teacher of 28 years explained why the union is doing this. So first of all, in the old days, uh, teachers weren't very unhappy with their salary before the unions came along, and things were going nicely. Teachers would uh, you know, have maybe a faculty senate, and they'd sit down with their school district and with parents, uh, taxpayers, and they would come up with fair pay that, uh, that equaled the kind of money that was coming into the school district. Well, ever since collective bargaining was passed, parents were removed from the equation and taxpayers were removed from the equation. So actually, collective bargaining is not healthy for any of us. According to the Los Angeles Times, the union, which said 96% of its membership had authorized the strike, is demanding a 30% salary increase plus a $2 per hour for the lowest paid workers. We want a fair contract. We're open to talk, we're willing to talk, but we need something that's fair. And bringing out of the poverty line, we're below the poverty line, 24, 25,000 average a year. In an effort to provide more resources for students during school closures, the Natural History Museums of Los Angeles County and Los Angeles Zoo said it is offering free admission to LAUSD students grade K through 12. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Tennis great Novak Djokovic, who will miss a pair of U.S. tournaments this month because he's unvaccinated, says he has no regrets about his decision, though he hopes to play the U.S. Open in August. It's one of the most four most important events. And at this stage of my career, Grand Slams are the ones that value the most, so I really want to be, really want to be playing there. Djokovic, who made the comments to CNN, ultimately says whether he's allowed to play is out of his hands. It's uh, debatable because there's always something that I can do, but I you know, choose not to. And, and, and of course, uh, now whether I'm going to be allowed to play or not, it's dependent on, obviously, uh, on the highest government decision. So I'm just going to wait and see. Djokovic missed two of last year's Grand Slams because of his vaccination status, yet despite that, has still been able to pass Roger Federer and catch Rafael Nadal with now 22 Grand Slam titles apiece. Good for first place all time. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has six games planned. 
Featuring the Celtics-Kings matchup as Boston tries to catch Milwaukee for the top spot in the East, while Sacramento has quietly moved up to the three spot in the West. Meanwhile in the NHL, busy night. 26 teams are in action, including three of the top six clustered in a tight race in the West as Minnesota, Dallas, and Vegas all play tonight, while just four points separate the top six teams. And finally, for you baseball fans, the World Baseball Classic Final is tonight with Shohei Otani in Japan playing Team USA in their billion-dollar lineup. Otani will not be the starting pitcher, though he could possibly come in relief. Meanwhile, Team USA's vaunted offense, which scored 14 runs Sunday in a rout of Cuba, features former MVP winners Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, and Paul Goldschmidt at the top. The game starts at 7 o'clock. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. But stick around for China in Focus coming up at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll have a story about the popular online shopping app Temu and the company behind it, a Chinese e-commerce giant. Till tomorrow, I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.